Hello, and welcome to Art Rebound, the podcast exploring stories of resilience from the creative frontline. I'm Susan Maddox, artist, designer, and your host, as we get into the lives and careers of incredible artists. We'll be taking inspiration from the inevitable ups and downs of their journeys and the ways in which they nurture their own creative resilience. I hope these stories will inspire you and maybe even help you on your own creative path. Let's get into today's episode. Have you ever wondered, what does an independent curator do? Well, this week, I invited Trisha Lagasso-Goldberg in to tell us about her experience. Trisha and I grew up together in Hawaii, and she's had an incredible career in arts administration and curation. Trisha became the director of Southern Exposure Gallery in San Francisco when she was 28 years old. She eventually moved back to Hawaii and was with the Hawaii State Foundation on Culture and the Arts before finding her way back to the Bay Area and most recently working on two very interesting projects. The first is with the Foresight Foundation on the exhibition Land's End at the historic Cliff House, focusing on climate crisis. She's also been deeply involved in producing the Carlos Villa retrospective, Worlds in Collision, which is currently traveling from the Newark Museum in New Jersey to the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco. I'm so excited to talk to Trisha today and to get some insight into all this amazing work. Hi, Trisha. Welcome. Hi, Susan. Hi, (laughs) great to be here. It's so nice to see you. Thank you so much. Of course. Where are you right now? Are you, you're in Hawaii, right? I'm in Hawaii. Yeah, I'm in our, I'm in my family home where I grew okay. up mm-hmm, in Iaea. And how long are you there for? I've been here since mid-February. I've been here for a few weeks and I'll be here for another week and a half. We've known each other for a very long time. Trisha and I actually grew up together in Hawaii and then were at the San Francisco Art Institute for a time together. And Although I've known you for so long, Trisha, there's a lot about your career that I actually don't know. (laughs) I'm very curious about a number of things about your career. I guess it would be interesting to sort of start with Southern Exposure. Like, how did you go from art student at the Art Institute to the time that you spent at Southern Exposure? Can you tell me about that? Sure. Yeah. I tell people that I I'm an accidental arts administrator and curator. It wasn't something that I set out to do when I was growing up. I didn't know anything about either of those things. I had my first gallery sitting job when I was straight out of high school at KCC at the Koa Gallery. Kind of um, dipped my toe in the the arts admin pool there, but I literally was just a gallery sitter. But by the time I moved to San Francisco and I graduated, I think I was 20. 22, 23, something like that when I graduated SFAI. And I did not a lot of people know this, but I worked at Enron Gas Services Group after art school. It's one of those scary American corporations that I didn't know anything about, but somehow my resume as a receptionist got got kind of cycled or rather forwarded to them. And it's important to note that because I realized through that experience that money isn't everything Mm. and that (laughs) I wanted to commit my life to uh, work that had meaning and purpose. Mm -hmm. And I was very drawn to community work. And I was really interested in using my, what very little experience I had in the uh, in the arts to to work together with others toward a common goal, but I didn't know what goals mm-hmm. were 
mm-hmm. even possible or out there. One thing led to another, and I ended up working at the San Francisco Urban Institute at San Francisco State University. And that was kind of a game changer for me because I made a lot of connections in the community, in the arts mm-hmm. community. It was where I started working with Carlos Villa mm-hmm. and Mark Johnson. Those are two of my teachers and mentors who I'm co-curating this exhibition on Carlos's work now. He mm-hmm. uh, passed away in 2013. And Mark, Mark Johnson is, is one of my co-curators. But in any case, that all kind of transpired between graduating at SFAI, being an mm-hmm. art student, graduate alumni, and then kind of what happened right after college. I was working at the Urban Institute. I started working with Carlos and Mark. Um, and simultaneously, I was connected with the director of Southern Exposure at the time, Mike Lockstein. Uh And I was connected with him through a common artist, Stephanie Sahuko. Mm -hmm. Stephanie and I went to SFAI together and she just said, the work that you're doing is really interesting. Like you're kind of moving in this direction. You really should meet Mike. And Uh she introduced me to him and I just started volunteering like, Uh like a crazy person. Like I lived kind of up the street from SOEX and I was there all the time mm-hmm. and any sort of mailer that was going out if they needed somebody to stuff envelopes or work the door or okay. uh, help deinstall uh-huh. you name it I was there I was available because uh-huh. I was a student I eventually went got into grad school at state in art history yeah I was doing grad school and working in working at the urban institute and Eventually, I was just doing grad school and working on different art projects mm-hmm. and volunteering a lot at Southern Exposure. When Mike, the then director, was cycling out of that position, mm-hmm. he was really encouraging me to apply. And they they actually like invited me to apply for the executive director position. And I had some curatorial experience. I was on the curatorial committee at the time at SOEX, which is an all-volunteer artist driven committee that makes that reviews applications for exhibitions for the organization and Southern Exposure doesn't have a discrete curator that makes all of the decisions about programming. It's done by an artist committee. Mm. I had served in that role for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. So in addition to like stuffing envelopes, I also I did that. But Mm. that's how it happens. Mm -hmm. My relationship with the organization was had already kind of uh, blossomed Mm -hmm. and I was very committed to to their vision of the organization and to supporting artists in the way that Southern Exposure continues to today. That's interesting. It sounds like you really found, you found some place that you felt really comfortable with and it just became a part of the community and really just sort of, (laughs) sort of became a part of it, became a much more sort of organic relationship, which is really smart, actually. I think that that's a very interesting way to do it. And you move from that position into an into a more official curatorial position. Well, I became the executive director. Oh, okay. So, uh-huh. Yeah, I went from a volunteer position serving on the curatorial committee mm-hmm. to being the director. And I was with the organization all said and told um, for five years mm-hmm. before I got pregnant. And then I kind of graduated from that role. I didn't feel like I didn't feel like I want it was a very high stress job. I had never served formally in a leadership position in a an, an official capacity like that. It was it was a really tough job. And 
really taught me a lot about mm-hmm. what I did and didn't want to do. Mm. And I kind of understood at that. There's a kind of long tale to this story about emerging arts administrators of color at the time and even now not receiving the kind of structural support within an institution that they need in order to take the helm of a predominantly white organization. Mm -hmm. There's a whole other kind of part of like, okay, how'd you get the job? Well, here's how I got it. But once I was in the role, I was like completely unsupported and Uh the experience in and of itself was, was a really challenging. And I wouldn't say it was a bad one, Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it wasn't like, I finally got my dream job. I was maybe 28 or something, 28, 29. And um, turns out that I, I hated it. Mm, <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. So, well, that's okay. important to learn. About that myself. is very important. I, and, and that's really interesting too. So were there things about the work though, that you really liked? Or was it the specific situation there that was sort of making it difficult for you? I guess I'm, I'm curious about like, what about the curatorial work did you love and did you want to continue to do? Like, how did that all break down for you? Yeah. A lot of the work, because it was a kind of democratic uh, curatorial distributed vision, it's like the director at Southern Exposure does many things. They do for development. So you have to invite and at and cultivate these relationships with prospective board members. You have to head, lead all of the fundraising. If your organizational budget is a million dollars, you have to raise a million dollars. It's pretty mm-hmm. intimidating for somebody with no formal fundraising experience <laughs> to step into a role like that and not have the not have the kind of um, like transit. There was no succession or transition plan in place for a new director. What I, I learned that all of these administrative things I was capable of, but not well supported and with no training, mm-hmm. it was very difficult for me to be successful 100% with these different aspects. The curatorial mm-hmm. piece, the part that I loved about the job was working in the community, was forging relationships with organizations. I had a friend at the time who worked for the Trust, of, Trust for Public Land, and they had different properties throughout the city, San Francisco 7x7 and TPL had these kind of pockets of green space throughout the city. And there was an opportunity there to partner with them and do some kind of temporary or permanent public art project with the trust. I was really interested in that aspect. Like mm-hmm. I, I love the FaceTime with other community members. I love kind of dreaming with other people and making something happen from scratch. I love Mm. bringing together the different folks in the room who I think have the right combination and skill sets to to make this thing happen. I I did pilot a a couple of really large scale, you know, projects while I was there, like the Sister Spaces exhibition. I was the director at the time and it was international exhibition showcasing work of of other nonprofit arts organizational spaces mm-hmm. in New Zealand, in Taipei, in Canada, and in the US. That exhibit is one example of like I really had fun working with Emily Sevier was my exhibition manager and curating like that was from beginning to end. We did the fundraising, mm-hmm. we wrote proposal, wow. we picked the spaces, we mm-hmm. picked the 
artists up at the airport. I <laughs> formed this relationship with the Headlands for the artists to stay there. It's like really being resourceful and drawing on a network that I have mm-hmm. established. And I'm a big believer in um, relationships and networking. For me, it was that's the fun part, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. is the allyship, relationship building. And of course, working with artists, I love, but Mm -hmm. I didn't get to do a lot of, you don't get to do a lot of that as a director. You're not often the front, the lead curator, like the gallery manager got to do more programming and front of house, like kind of work with the artists than Mm -hmm. I did. Mm -hmm. But that's how I did. That's how I figured out that I, I wanted to do less of the kind of (laughs) high level organizational administrative work and more of the programmatic curatorial work. Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Were you able to, was there a point at which you were considering continuing with your art practice or like what happened to the art practice while you were doing this incredibly intense job? That's a good question. I think that's the, I was also curating another large scale exhibition right around the same time that I got this job. That was my first art, you know, exhibition that I curated was with Carlos Villa. Mm-hmm. So I co-curated an exhibition called San Francisco Babaylan Sister City Sisters with Carlos. And it was an exhibition featuring Filipina American artists from the Bay Area mm-hmm. that traveled to Manila with um, Mayor Brown's cultural and trade mission. And that was like in 1998. Okay. It was all kind of happening around the same time. And I mentioned it because I've always had this kind of expanded practice as a curator where I was working, I, I have, I work with uh, contemporary artists that are broad kind of mix of contemporary artists, international. And I'm also really interested in cultural, cultural specific work in the Filipino community. Mm-hmm. My practice has always included both. Well, Carlos Villa keeps coming up. And of course, I'm very interested to talk about your relationship with him over time and the exhibition that's up now. You might as well get into that because <laughs> Carlos was actually one of my painting teachers, of course, at the San Francisco Art Institute. And I know how he was so just so loved, but such a generous, incredible person. And I didn't realize that you had worked with him so much. I'm actually just very curious about like, it sounds like, was he a mentor to you? Like what, how would you describe like your, it sounds like he had a large role in your life. I'd love to know more about that. Yeah. I was just talking to Nancy Bulalakau this morning. Nancy is uh, curating the public programs for the Carlos Villa show at the Newark Museum on the East Coast. And she was asked, she's doing a program there called Mabuhay Guro that's about storytelling around mentorship. And I'm going to the Newark Museum to talk about Carlos. Like that's going to be Uh uh, kind of short storytelling around my relationship with him and how he impacted my career and my trajectory. Mm-hmm. And so this is kind of fresh in my mind. Mm, um, good. Yeah. And for me, it was like, Carlos was in, in the embodiment of so many kind of a, aspirational, not just characteristics, but achievements. And like, he was so accomplished when I met him. And even beyond, of course, he was so well regarded as, and he was the first multi-hyphenate artist that I had met. He was more than a student. He was never... I think from a very early on, he was he was curating, he was teaching, he was organizing, and doing work in the studio. He was a real um, kind of model 
for I think emerging artists and administrators and curators. And his his focus, of course, was multiculturalism in the arts. He was interested in kind of like cracking open this the the kind of Western art history canon that seemed to be very sealed and exclusive, right? To, mm-hmm. to white folks and really understanding that, like kind mm-hmm. of this very discreet history that didn't include so many stories and and individuals and histories, including our own, right? I shared values and with him and I saw he was moving in a direction and really focusing on wanting to lift up and create space for women artists, for artists of color, for LGBTQ artists. And this um, was starting back in the 90s? Correct. Yeah. Uh-huh. I started working with him. I think the first project I ever worked with him on was the Worlds in Collision website, which was at the time, this is 1996, seven around mm-hmm. then. And my husband, David Goldberg, and I worked on that project. David was the tech director and I was the co-director with Julio Morales, another SFAI alum. Uh-huh. And uh, we were creating, the website was meant as an art, as a resource for teachers. This is before the internet blew up. You mm-hmm. couldn't just you couldn't just Google Susan Maddock, you know, or <laughs> Waleed Rod or Paul Pfeiffer or Lorna Simpson. Mm-hmm. None of the artists that we would be interested in learning <laughs> learning from were accessible to teachers. And so we were trying to figure out how to create a textbook and a resource for teachers in the classroom that they could just go to as a way to introduce multi slate of like multicultural artists and have them at their fingertips and introduce them to students. Well, now that you are not working with any of these institutions, you are functioning as an independent curator. Can you talk a little bit about what you do as an independent curator and kind of like what your focus is at this point in time moving forward? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just texting with someone the other day about being an independent curator. It's hard. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's again like you and I were just discussing like oh people think that when I come to Hawaii I'm like laying on the beach and like whatever <laughs> it, every every trip is a vacation but of course I have family uh commitments and I have a I have a role to play here as a daughter sister cousin auntie etc um there's all of that right but in addition to that it's like being an independent curator I have to wear every hat. We have this traveling exhibition. I recently had two exhibitions that were were that were open at the same time. That was Lanzan at the former Cliff House, and that I did for Foresight. I was working with them, director of curatorial affairs, like on the on the staff there. And I once that project ended, I graduated from that position and am now just focusing on the Carlos Villa exhibition. But I had those two shows open, mm-hmm. you know at the same time and it's when you work on these exhibitions you're doing everything from like creating text for the labels on the walls to working with marketing every department at the at these museums you you practically have to touch in some ways whether it's ideas for merch in the gift shop to figuring out who to contact for a quote Mm -hmm. for marketing and promotion it's lots of different things and it is a million meetings and it's a lot of just kind of details to track. It's a lot of project management. It's a lot of small team management, depending on what phase of the project we're working on. Mm-hmm. And in this case, we have the exhibition is open at the Newark Museum, mm-hmm. and there's active programming that's happening there. I'm actually going there and engaging with the public programs person and their team. And I 
could give another tour when I go back there in a couple of weeks. And then I'm also working with the San Francisco teams and kind of finishing out, like making final calls on installations. I have artists who are contemporary artists who are included in the Asian Art Museum presentation of the exhibition who are not done making their artwork. I got to... <laughs> okay, so you're um, chasing that down too. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. So there's there's a lot going on and mm-hmm. you have to keep track of your time. I also like volunteer a ton for different organizations and mm-hmm. constantly receiving invitations to do this kind of programming and engagement or will you review grants for our organization or... Will you, you know, be a juror for this exhibition or lots of different relationships to manage and Mm -hmm. opportunities, which Mm -hmm. is great, but it's, you have to be really careful with your time. I'm sure. Let's talk about Land's End a little bit since we didn't talk about that yet. You just talked about it, but can you, can you kind of describe what that was about? And I'm, I'm very sorry that I missed that. I really wanted to see that (laughs) exhibition. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Because it sounded very interesting. Yeah, Foresight, that was a Foresight Foundation project. Foresight Foundation was founded in 2012 by Cheryl Haynes, who is a force in the the art world internationally, but she's based in San Francisco. And she has had a a commercial gallery for 30 years. She, in fact, just opened a new space. She moved her gallery from 49 Geary to Fort Mason. She has a whole kind of blue chip gallery life. But in 2012, I think there, she was really interested in pursuing these kind of the tagline for Foresight, for Foresight is art about place. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what she was interested in exploring. And, and I think there was a kind of an absence of that kind of opportunity and for artists and, um, and programming in the Bay Area. What does so, that mean exactly? Yeah, well, it means many things. You mm-hmm, know? So it's, mm-hmm. I think all of the programming that Foresight does is really thinking about site. Mm, right really thinking about a specific place or an area the history of this place I mean I think a lot about like David Ireland Mm -hmm. and I think a lot about the work that he did with Anne Hatch at the Headlands and with that team right Uh thinking about the former use of the barracks and this former military installation that was then converted into parkland federal parkland and then converted into an art space, an international mm-hmm. art space. So, but never losing sight of the original. And I would even, I would even say, go further back and think about the the indigenous folk who were mm-hmm. stewarding the land before it was a military installation. But it's that kind of mm, curiosity and wanting to honor and think about the history of a place mm-hmm. through art. I right. Uh-huh. That's one way that Foresight, I think, really, um, that's part of their mission. Mm-hmm. And it makes it makes the work even more, I think, accessible. It becomes a history book, a history lesson, an exhibition or an artwork can become a teacher, a guide. It, you know, can serve prompts to where you end up kind of asking more questions than mm-hmm. receiving answers about place. In the case with... Uh, with the Land's End exhibition, here's this storied, iconic site, which is the Cliff House, perched on the on this bluff, right overlooking the Pacific Ocean. And you think about just that. It's an site incredible spot. Not, 
Absolutely. Yeah. uh, yeah. (laughs) There's nothing like it. Nothing like it. Uh You know, nothing like it. And it's funny because that really does feel like a lot of history there too. in that spot. It's like there's ruins there. Yeah. It's it's like there's evidence of history even. Also, it feels like it's about to wash away. (laughs) Absolutely. Which you and I have explored together. I don't know if you remember that one story night, uh, uh, exploring suture baths in the dark. If that happened, <laughs> I'm uh, sure it did. Was, I don't think that's was, the only time I did that either, honestly. <laughs> um, well, but no, that's right. It's the hubris of these developers of mm-hmm. humans, like building this structure precariously, like on the edge of this of this cliffside, um, just kind of begging Mother Nature to have it as a team. And Sutro kind of expanding the original structure was like a one-story wood structure that burned down Mm. like pretty soon after it was put up by real estate developers, believe it or not. This is like in the 1800s, Mm. the heels of the gold rush. The population in San Francisco had boomed as a result of the gold rush. There were so many different, not just... 49ers who were looking for goat panning for gold, but all of the different services that you need when you have this influx of population, these, you know, newcomers to an area, you need food, you need supplies, you need railroads, transportation, all of those things, right? Mm -hmm. So the population had exploded and these developers said, what an incredible site for a restaurant or a bar, a destination for the wealthy. And it was for the wealthy because you needed a, a horse and buggy or like a horse to get out there. And that no, not everybody had that kind of access to transportation. Eventually, Adolf Sutro bought the property and expanded the site to include the baths down below. And this is at the height of kind of Victorian era hubris and taking the waters, right? Like this idea of mm-hmm. like controlling natural resources for some health benefits. Yeah. He kind of did all this and that burnt down and his daughter eventually inherited the site, Dr. Emma Mer- Sutro Merritt, and she built the the concrete structure that's in place now. And then there was like a new part of the restaurant that was built out by the parks, the National Park Service who owns it now. But that's just a story. That, that a story, story alone, it's <laughs> incredible. It's really something to have the opportunity mm-hmm. to do a contemporary art exhibition in a place with already so much history mm-hmm. and that artists can mine that history, can draw from it or lean into it to tell a story about, about climate disaster and climate change, climate crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, a singular, singular opportunity. Were the works created specifically for the place in at least some of the cases or? Yeah, yeah. some of the, yeah, there were mm-hmm. some commissioned, there were some, there were quite a few new works that were, mm-hmm. that were made for the exhibition. Adam Feebleman, who did this incredible hand cut paper work with, I can send you some images to kind of, yeah, to share what he was doing, but it's like two mm-hmm. pieces of cut paper, black on white. Mm. And the piece is called Wrath of Wrath of a Mother Scorned. And it is a depiction of kind of um the the wildfires in, in Northern California that mm-hmm. we you know, especially during the pandemic, we all remember what that was like, shut into our homes, isolating in place, and the skies were blood orange. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot. It was a lot. He made that work mm-hmm. and we hung it in the atrium of in the kind of entryway of the of the site. It was kind of set it off like 
it made the space kind of feel holy, like a church. Wonderful. Like it kind of felt like stained glass. And mm. the backdrop, you cut paper and we framed it in two pieces of plex, just sandwiched together. You could see the Pacific Ocean mm. um, mm-hmm. and the horizon and the sunset through the artwork because we hung it in front of these you know, glass windows. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of shadow play during the course of the day while the sun was arcing overhead. It would project these shadows onto the floor of the atrium at the Cliff House. And it was really magical. That mm-hmm. was the original work. Of course, the Andy Goldsworthy geophagia that was made out of clay from the Sacramento foothills in Ione, California. This white clay that mm. we worked with the Heath Ceramics. Heath Ceramics potters came in as a team and created this incredible site-specific installation of like an inch and a half thick slabs of clay, cracked earth, like slabs of clay that we let dry in place to speak to the historic drought um, in Northern, again, in Northern California. Wow. Yeah. Gulner Azdaglar did this amazing installation at the, at the very front of the exhibition made out of upcycled plastic bottles. Mm-hmm. And that was a really interesting experience for me because it was my first first exhibition that I carry, co-curated or worked on where I worked with artists predominantly on Zoom. My goodness, right. She was in Ankara, oh. Turkey. And just trying to get all of those pieces lined up remotely, like trying to get the drawings, what the final installation should look like. This is like a kind of suspended, there are these pendulum pieces that we hung from the rafters and these floor pieces that we integrated into this kind of underwater scape was all so made out of she sent bottles. the artwork and then you had to install it yeah <laughs> oh wow yeah and everyone's in a <laughs> pandemic she what uh-huh. am i using as a reference image she was an architect by training she uh-huh. actually did draw a schematic she uh-huh. sent me plenty of good information but in the end it's like i sent her photographs Mm-hmm. blueprints, dimensions of the atrium where we were going to hang her work. But it isn't until you're really in the space that you, you know, a work really comes together. So Absolutely. Some, a lot of it was trust. And yeah. you know, I was using a photograph that she sent me of her, that she did in her kitchen. Mm-hmm. What I mean? <laughs> yes. It's like amazing. Trisha. Okay. Here, yeah. here's uh, Gulner's, you know, <laughs> installation in her kitchen. And I'm using that, like, <laughs> it, look? it was wild. Yeah. And yet somehow you pulled it off. Incredible. (laughs) It was a beautiful exhibition. And I think so (sighs) thousands of people were able to view it and were so moved by it. And um, really is, I think Cheryl is such a visionary um, Mm -hmm. in this, in this way. And I learned a lot from her and from that Mm -hmm. experience and working in place. And so many of the works like responding to the former use of the Cliff House as a restaurant, Mm -hmm. including Goldsworthy's clay surfaces which were top these salvaged bistro tables and that mm. was the artist's design he mm-hmm. insisted on using salvaged tables he didn't want new ones we found these old diner tables that these slabs of clay got got placed upon mm-hmm. um, do you think you would ever want to actually address that with your own yeah, I mean, you asked a question about that earlier that I don't think I answered fully about like, how did I integrate my own art practice while I was making when I was kind of emerging as a curator. And I, I've, I thought a lot about that. And I do still make things for sure. I still make 
display and I still, I make exhibitions. I really think about my <laughs> curatorial yes. project as, as making, as building. Well, there you, you know? go. Yeah. I, I mean, so it is a very creative process and I know you to be an extremely creative person, which makes perfect sense. Yeah, it's creative. And I mean, I really kind of um, focus in on the making aspect. I, I'm a maker. Like I want to do things with my hands. Mm-hmm. I want to want to like problem solve with other people. I want to do, I want to do some things on my own and I want it to also be a team sport and being a curator and running projects, you get to do both. And it's super satisfying as to like make something mm-hmm. um, out of, out of nothing like a, or found stuff or materials that you've never used before. And every exhibition is, and is a chance for me to learn something new. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss one. If you're enjoying these conversations, it really helps spread the word when you rate and review a podcast. I'd love you to help me share these inspiring journeys with more people all over the world. If you'd like to get in touch with me or learn more about my work, you can find me at SusanMaddoxStudio.com or on Instagram at SusanMaddoxStudio. Do join us again for more stories of resilience from the creative front line here on Art Rebound with me, Susan Maddox. Goodbye.